All right, good, good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being with us today in person or online. After first service, I was worried we were going to be light in second service. Not a problem. Um, so again, uh, thanks for being with us. My name is Michael, one of the pastors on staff here, and we are excited to have you with us on this Easter Sunday. Uh, now, this being Easter, we are going to observe an Easter tradition that the church has practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's a call and response kind of thing. And so with it, somebody says he is risen. And those who hear that reply with he is risen indeed. So you ready? All right. You got to respond. It makes you feel like you're paying attention. Are you ready? Yes. Excellent. All right. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Very good. Very good. Now, that tradition uh, reminds me of an Easter truth. And that truth is very simply this. When you find life where you expected to find death, that is a world-changing discovery. When you go somewhere and you expect to find dead things and instead you find living things, that can change your life. Now, for me, this truth really was cemented in my soul when I was working one of the very first jobs I ever had. It was not the first job I ever aspired to. Growing up, the very first job I ever wanted was to be a garbage man. That's it. Yeah, I saw you making the motion, baby. Yeah. I mean, like a little boy, four years old, Monday mornings, I was glued to the living room window, right? Because, I mean, there they would come, riding down the street, and they're hanging on the back of the truck, wind blowing through their hair, you know, they, they, the power coursing through their veins as you push the compactor button. Every little boy wanted that, right? But eventually I grew out of that, and the next thing I wanted to be was a veterinarian. And I kind of held on to that dream for a number of years until uh, during my, between my freshman and sophomore year, I spent a summer working at a veterinary clinic. And that dissuaded me of the notion that I ever wanted to be a veterinarian, Right? Uh, the, you know, I, the job that I had, you know, anybody who had this particular job, one of our roles was we were the person who would hold your cat or your dog while the veterinarian put it to sleep. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. And if that weren't bad enough, like after your dog, after Spot or Fluffy or whatever your animal's name was, when it literally died in my arms, then my job was to take it out back behind the building where we had this big six-foot-by-three-foot freezer and deposit the remains of your animal in there until Tuesdays. Because on Tuesday, we were the only clinic in the state that did this. I don't know if, they, if they, the place is still there. I don't know if they still do this. But on Tuesdays, we would fire up this big blast furnace and we would empty the freezer into the furnace, Right? You know, cremate all the animals. And you would have like these, I didn't tell first service this. Second service, you get special, you know, things here. So, like, you're welcome. If you had these really big animals, because some of the dogs were big, they would freeze in there. And you, you, you just, you know, it's like you're getting them in. It was brutal, you know? I was like, a summer of that? I did not want to be a veterinarian any longer. It was cured, right? But I did learn a lot about life and death. I worked with somebody there, a gal named Sarah. And Sarah had a very sophisticated, well-developed sense of humor. All right? 
Yeah. And so, so Sarah, she, she waited once, once a year, you know, Tuesday you'd empty out the freezer and then once a year you would unplug the freezer and let it defrost for about 24 hours. And during that time, if somebody brought their animal in, they had a smaller, you know, freezer they could, you know, put animals in just for the day. Um, so Wednesday comes and Bill's on that day and Bill has no idea they've defrosted the freezer and that somebody brings a cat in that needs to be put down and Bill's the guy who was holding the cat while they put it down. And so everybody sends Bill back to the freezer to put the cat in there. And so Bill's heading back there, expecting to find dead things in the freezer. Instead, he finds a very alive Sarah who's been hiding in the freezer waiting for him. So he opens that thing up and Sarah's like, bah! right? Cats go flying, undergarments are soiled, expletives freely flow and Sarah and Bill's relationship is forever changed because when you find life where you expect to find death it'll change your world now that's what those first Christians found that first Easter morning they found life where they expected to find death and it changed their world and it did so in a number of ways, one of which was simply this. It allowed them to say goodbye to religion. It allowed them to say goodbye to religion. Now, it probably is worthwhile to define this term religion for the sake of our conversation today and the rest of this series. So let me do that for you. Today, when we say religion, for the rest of the series, when we say religion, here's what we have in mind. Interactions that we have with God based on principles that God doesn't mean for us to interact with him through. Now, sometimes those principles, they can be good godly principles that over time evolve into something dysfunctional. Other times from the word go, they can be all kinds of messed up. But either way, when we're interacting with God, based on principles he doesn't mean for us to interact with him through, that's religion. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, Mike, Thank you so much for defining that for me. You're welcome. But you're still wondering, you're like, listen, this is still kind of theoretical. Can you put some handles on this? Yes, I can. Because I, I would contend that there's a host of different principles that God does not mean for us to interact with him through that we can stumble into. But I would also contend that some are more common than others. In fact, if I was going to make a list of our top four, it would include some things like these. So let's, let's, let me give you the top four markers of religion, at least as I see them. So here we go. Marker number one, sin and shame. If when it comes to your relationship with God, it's all about what a worm you are, how messed up, how broken you are. If the primary emotions you experience in your relationship with God are regret and fear and shame, you just might be caught up in religion. Marker number two, select people. If in your world there are spiritual winners and spiritual losers, spiritual in crowd, a spiritual out crowd, if in your world you have to go through someone, another person, in order to get to God, you just might be caught up in religion. Number three, Sacred places. Let me offend some people with this one. Thin your world. One building's more sacred than another. 
If in your world, one particular plot of ground is more holy than another, if there's some place you can go to that somehow by being there gets you closer to God than another place, you just might be caught up in religion. And then number four, suffocating lists. If you have this long list of do's and don'ts that you have to flawlessly navigate in order to get close to God, you just might be caught up in religion. If your relationship with God is characterized by sin and shame and select people and sacred places and suffocating lists, you just might have a religion problem. And here's, here's part of what this means. It means we can find religion in all kinds of places. We can find religion in a cult. We can find religion in other faiths. And we can even find religion right here at church. But again, that first Easter, those first Christians, they found life where they expected to find death, and it set them free. It allowed them to say goodbye to sin and shame, Bye, goodbye to select people, goodbye to sacred places, goodbye to suffering, suffering less. That first Easter, they found life, and in the risen Jesus, they were able to say goodbye to religion. So here's what we're going to do over the course of this series. Each week, we're going to take one of these markers, and we're going to explore together how the resurrection allows us to say goodbye to this marker of religion. This is week one. Who wants to take a guess which one we're going to start with? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Number one, all right? Because anybody who loves Jesus is concrete sequential. Amen? <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's pray, invite God to be part of this, and then we'll, we'll dive into number one here. Father, thank you just for time to come together, for time to worship, to be with one another, and to seek your face. Father, help us please today just to have hearts and minds that are open to you and to your truth. I can hear from you on how the risen Jesus sets us free from sin and shame. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So again, Resurrection lets us say goodbye to sin and shame. See, the, the world that Jesus stepped into, it was a world just steeped in religion. It, it was a world full of sin and shame. It, is, it was a world where people were held captive to regret and to fear, where they were afraid to draw near to God because of where they had been and what they had done. Now, you, you read the first four books of the New Testament that serve as biographies of Jesus' life, and you see this just again and again and again. We get a great example of this in one of Jesus' very first followers, a guy named Peter. As Jesus calls Peter to follow him for the first time, you see how sin and shame just have their hooks into Peter. Luke, Luke records it in his biography, and Luke will talk about how Jesus is, is preaching. Jesus does a lot of that. 
He's got this massive crowd of people who are there listening to him. Peter's in that crowd. And after Jesus gets done preaching, Jesus gets into Peter's boat, has Peter push out into the deeper waters, and then Jesus performs a miracle. He enables Peter at a time where he shouldn't be to catch fish. We're we're told that, that, that he'd caught a large number of fish. So, so many fish that Peter's nets are busting. They're beginning to break. He's motioning his partners over in the other boat. They come to help them. And they fill both boats so full that they begin to sink. Now, for, for a fisherman, this is a ton of fish. For, from a financial perspective, this is a huge windfall. This is enough fish to be enough money for Peter to take care of his debts, to catch up his bills, to pad his 401k, to take the family to Disney World on top of it. Now, you would think after that kind of financial windfall that Peter would respond with gratitude. Maybe he'd get next to Jesus, give him a big old hug and tell him, thank you. But if you know the story, you know that's not how it goes. You know, instead, Peter falls down on his knees and he says this to Jesus. He says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. See, Peter realizes he's just witnessed a miracle. God has broken into time and space and begun to manipulate the natural course of events. And Peter realizes as he stands in the presence of Jesus, he is standing in the presence of divinity. And all he can see is his brokenness, his sin. And and rather than draw near to Jesus, Peter shrinks back in fear. Maybe in fear of judgment, maybe in fear of rejection, maybe in fear of the other shoe dropping. But he shrinks back in fear and he tells Jesus, while you still have a chance, get away from me. But Jesus says this to Peter. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. Now, it's, it's, it's not that Jesus doesn't see the sin. He's aware of it. And he doesn't, Jesus doesn't try and talk Peter out of the notion that he's broken and sinful. But Jesus sees Peter for more than just who he is as a sinner. Jesus sees who Peter could be if he were forgiven. He could be at peace. And so Peter, he leaves everything. He leaves everything to follow this Jesus with whom he could trade in his sin for forgiveness, with whom he could trade in his shame for peace. And and as Peter follows Jesus, he watches Jesus do this again and again and again. He watches Jesus offer forgiveness and peace in ways that are scandalous to the religious culture that surrounds them. Again, they are steeped in a culture that has tried and convicted and sentenced people to a life of shame. And yet, Jesus is regularly saying to people, you you give me your sin, I'll give you forgiveness. You give me your shame, I'll give you peace. You, You see a great example of this, I mean, there's just One story after another in the New Testament, we can tell of Jesus doing this. You get a great example a little bit later on in Luke. 
Why, Jesus is at a dinner party. All kinds of religious people there. And then this woman shows up who does not fit in. Luke tells us that she's a prostitute. And when she shows up, all the religious people who are there can think is what a sinner this woman is. In fact, at one point she comes in and she just has an emotional meltdown there in front of Jesus. She is sobbing uncontrollably, enough so where she can wash his feet with her tears and begins to dry them with her hair. And the, and the man who's running the party, he, he begins to think to himself. He thinks, if this man were a prophet, if this guy were, is, he was really as close to God as he claims to be, close enough where he knows what God is thinking, what God's going to do, and he can speak on God's behalf. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And by implication, he wouldn't let her do it. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. That she is the totality of who she is can be summed up this way. She is a sinner. Again, Jesus isn't ignorant. He knows who this woman is, where she's been, what she's done. And he doesn't try and dissuade her of that notion. Doesn't deny the fact that sin is a reality in her life. But again, Jesus sees her as more than that. Rather than condemn her, rather than run her off, Jesus wants to offer her forgiveness and peace. And so Jesus looks at this woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd that's there, they're, they're watching this. And they start talking. It's one of those, you, know, you, just, you can just hear it. And, and they, they want to know, who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, who does this guy think he is? Forgiving sins is a divine job. And Jesus just looks at the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peter's seen this happen with person after person after person. And he gets to this place where he is buying what Jesus is selling. He gets to this place where he really believes he can exchange his sin for forgiveness, that his sin doesn't have the final say anymore. He can exchange his shame for peace. His shame does not get to define who he is. He gets to this place where he believes he can draw near to God in wonder and worship rather than shrink back in fear and trepidation like he did on the boat. And then Good Friday comes. And the bottom just drops out. Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He's hauled off to the high priest's home. They try him there. The heat gets turned up on Peter, and Peter just melts down. Peter denies that he knows Jesus, swears to God he doesn't have anything to do with that guy, calls down damnation upon himself in an effort to separate himself from Jesus. And we're told that, that, that as soon as he gets done with that third denial, that Jesus, that the Lord turned and looked right at Peter. 
As soon as Peter gets done trying to convince all of these people, he's got nothing to do. Peter's like, I got nothing to do with this guy. He turns and makes eye contact with Jesus. And he knows. He knows. Jesus saw it all. Jesus heard it all. You ever have a moment like that? Probably not that extreme, right? Did you ever have a moment where, like, I mean, like, you just blew it? Maybe somebody in heaven, maybe somebody here on earth. You're caught red-handed. You let that person down. I call that a Denver moment. No? Okay. Denver moment. Denver is an internet sensation who in a more lighthearted way kind of illustrates for us what it is to get caught red-handed in sin and shame. So let's bring down the lights, we'll watch the screens, and he'll explain it to us. All right, well, apparently while I was out, somebody got into the kitty cat treats. Now, I'm gonna go look at the suspects. Suspect number one. You, Macy, see your face. Did you do this? Did you? I don't think you did. Number two. What? Did you do this? Denver, did you do this? Denver, was this you? Denver, you won't look at me. Did you? What? Denver, did you do this? Look at me. Come here. Let me see. Let me see your face. Oh my goodness, Denver, you didn't. You did this? You got in the kitty cat's treats? While I was going? I can't believe it. Are you sorry about it? Okay. You know the routine. In the kennel. Go on. Very disappointed. You're in the penalty box. You let it happen. I hope you're happy too. So this is where Peter's at, right? He's in the doghouse. See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> my kids don't appreciate my humor. I don't know what the problem is, right? But, I mean, for Peter, there's nothing funny about it. He has just denied the Messiah with every fiber of his being. And then it just gets worse. Jesus is beaten. He's crucified. He dies. 
They lay his lifeless body in a tomb. They roll over the stone. They seal it shut. And everything that he taught about forgiveness and freedom and shame and peace, it all seems to die with him. That day, religion seemed to have won. But then Easter comes. And on that Easter morning, they find life where they expected to find death. On that morning, the ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. God's perfect love could not be overcome. On that morning, all of heaven cries out, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. On that morning, everything changed. Now, the mischievous part of me, just that little part of me, likes to think that Jesus had himself a defrosted freezer moment with the Roman guards. God, the earth is shaking, the stone's rolling out of the way, and those guards are creeping up and they're peeking into that dark tomb, and Jesus says, blah, right? Spears go flying and robes are soiled and Latin expletives flow freely and those guards are forever changed. Which didn't happen, but I like to think that it did. But on that first Easter, they found life where they expected to find death and it transformed them. Again, just think about Peter. Here's this man. At the end of these first four books in the New Testament, he, he is a liar. He is a, uh, he's, he's running. He is denying. He is hiding. He's a sniveling coward. And then you have the resurrection. And the book of Acts opens up, and this man is boldly, fearlessly, unswervingly proclaiming Jesus. They threaten his life. They beat the dickens out of man. They try and kill him multiple times over. And he will not stop. And thousands of people, they find forgiveness and peace as this man is transformed. Now, towards the end of his life, Peter writes about the transformation that he experienced and that we can experience. Wrote about it in one of his letters to the church. Here's what he said. He said, for you know, now he's speaking to the church. He's like, listen, if you're following Jesus, you should know this. He says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. He's like, listen, at one point in time, our lives were a broken, sinful mess for sure. So it was, it was as though sin and shame had kidnapped us. They were holding us hostage, and there was nothing we could do to pay that ransom price. But then God showed up, and he paid it. And Peter speaks next to, uh, about to, to what God paid that ransom price with. He says next, he says, it was not paid with mere silver and gold, which, which lose their value. God's not mess around with this stuff that's up and down and what are rocks really worth anyway? He's like, no. It was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Peter says, when, when God showed up to pay your ransom, he offered the 
very, the very best heaven had. The blood of Christ. The one who never sinned. Who laid down his life like a sacrificial lamb in our place. And then Peter wraps it up this way. He says, through Christ, you've come to trust in God. You have been, you, you, you have placed your faith and hope in God. Why? Because God raised Christ from the dead. Because life was found where death was expected, you can say goodbye to sin and shame. So this Easter, we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the empty tomb. We want to celebrate the risen Christ. We want to celebrate the fact that because of Jesus, we can say goodbye to religion as well. This Easter, we want to celebrate that while God was well aware of our sin and brokenness, rather than condemn us, he paid our ransom. He offered us forgiveness in the place of sin. Rather than run us off or let our shame define us any longer, he offered us peace in the place of shame. This Easter Sunday, we want to celebrate that the transformation that was available to Peter and those first Christians, it is available to you and me. And so as we finish, today we want to invite you into a number of things. Today we want, we want to invite you to come back for the rest of the week. So we're going to, each week we're going to look at these other markers of religion and explore how the resurrection sets us free. Next weekend, Pastor Don Earl Johnson from Life Church Auburn Hills, he's going to be here preaching. He's a way better preacher than me, all right? I'm going to be out there. You can pray for Life Church Auburn Hills. Week three, I'll be back. If you're going to skip a week, that's a week to skip, all right? But come on back. They're going to be, we're going to look at each of these different markers and how the resurrection sets us free. I also want to invite you, listen, if you have someone in your life who's held captive religion right now, invite them out. Pray for them this week. Love on them. Look for an opportunity. Invite them to join you. And finally, as, as we finish, if you've never said goodbye to sin and shame, but you're ready to, I want to pray with you. I want to invite you just to pray silently with me and say yes to the forgiveness and the peace that Jesus made available to you as he paid that ransom, as he laid down his life in your place. Or if you're here today, and at some point in the past, you made a commitment to Christ, but life is taking you in a direction where th that relationship just feels just broken and, and fractured and splintered, and you're not even sure if it was real, Again, as we pray, I, I would invite you to pray with me. Recommit yourself to Christ. Begin afresh. So let's pray together and we'll worship. Father, again, thank you that life was found where death was expected. Thank you that you resurrected Jesus from the grave. 
Thank you that he came, that he paid that ransom price that is the sinless, spotless lamb of God. He showed us the way and then he made right what we could not make right ourselves. Father, some of us today, like Peter, we want to confess we're sinful people. We're broken. We can't fix this ourselves. We need a Savior. Today we want to put our hope, our faith, our trust in Jesus. In his life, his death, and in his resurrection. We want to surrender all of who we are to him and follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,